Hello, welcome to CPP Chat, a sometimes weekly look at what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community, and we'll get to this week's guest in a moment. But first, in accordance with our contract, we need to establish our preconditions. John? All right, so I'm going to read uh, the disclaimer. Um, Dear customers, your order is valuable to us. We would like to understand and appreciate how much we care for your orders. For orders received after the cutoff time, we will try our best to deliver those by February 14th, 14th February. However, no such commitment is given. It may be delivered by 15th February. For those of you who are at all interested in disclaimers, uh, Google Valentine disclaimers and have yourself a lot of fun because there's some amazing disclaimers out there. And I really couldn't find a, a great one to capture it. You just have to enjoy that on your own. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you're listening to this as a podcast, you're probably too late for that. But. Yes, it may be delivered by 15th February. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, are of, we are recording on the 14th, we should say that. Uh, yes. So talking of contracts, uh, that, that's a nice uh, segue into to our guest today, because we have uh, uh, Bjorn Faller, who um, is, is coming on because of an email exchange uh, earlier this week. Now, uh, Bjorn was a speaker at C++ on C last week, and he spoke about contracts there. And he felt that because contracts is going to be um, one of the topics being discussed at Kona next week, and there's a little bit of a controversy brewing over it, uh, it'd be nice if his video got out before Kona so more people could, could actually get to see it. So I asked him if he wanted to come on the show to talk about it as well. And uh, for, for some reason, he agreed. So, <laughs> so here he is. So uh, hello, Bjorn. Hello there, Phil. Hello, John. Uh, Hello. Yeah, there is, uh, as Phil mentioned, there is some controversy uh, about contracts uh, as they are currently specified in, in the language specification. And uh, in my talk, I made some points, some good and some bad. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are uh, an argument in that debate, although I'm really not sure which side. <laughs> <laughs> before we before we get into that, though, we should talk about C on C. Um, I'm anxious to hear about this. I talked briefly with Kate, and, and she seemed very excited. Uh, what's your take on this, Phil? Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, only slightly partial. <laughs> uh, no, I think the, 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 the summary is it went really well. Um, not perfectly, but really well. Uh, in fact, a lot of people came up to me afterwards, or even during, and, and said how, how great it was, and how much I appreciated this and that. Um, it was amusing. I know how gratifying that is. It was amusing. One of the common themes was so many people said it's so great for the first time. So <laughs> it was an interesting qualification there. Uh, so, so I have actually, <laughs> I have actually uh, re- requested feedback. Um, uh, I sent out a form to everyone, and I've been getting that coming through. And I've, I've allowed people to remain anonymous, uh, although they can choose to put their name against it. So I'm hoping that we're going to get some honest feedback through there. And I've got one or two things through that have been uh, some uh, fairly transparent uh, feedback already, which, which is all good. Um, mm-hmm. Most of it is, is stuff that I, I, I did know about. Uh, we had a couple of problems with uh, the temperature for a start. It was very cold, um, which is not surprising for the time of year in, in the UK, especially by the sea. What we didn't realise was how much that was going to leak into the venue. So that was a, that was a problem at times. Um, and, and we had some problems with uh, just the sheer numbers for, for lunch, especially on the first day. Um, all things that we can probably address next time. So that's, that's all valuable feedback. Um, nothing particularly major beyond that. So other than that, it was, it was really a good success. The, the video should be coming online very soon. Um, and uh, Bjorn's one will be in the first batch. I, I prioritized it for, for that reason. And in fact, that, hopefully that video should be published uh, just after this show. So... Um, people listening live will be able to actually go and see that uh, to, to see what we're talking about. In fact, I've set up a, a forwarding alias, uh, cbponc.uk forward slash videos will redirect you to the, to the YouTube channel, which is currently empty. But by the time you hear this, probably uh, that will be populated by, by all the videos. So, yeah, I think that's, um, that's my summary amazing, for now. Amazing turnaround on that. That's really impressive. Well, we've got the same video guys who do uh, the ACCU conference. I'm uh, quite uh-huh. impressed with their work. Um, glad that they, they agreed to, to come and help. So they are, um, they're quite old hands of this. So Bjorn, do you have any um, comments from a speaker's point of view there? Uh, yeah, it was uh, 
It was embarrassingly good. Uh, it, it was uh, it, it was an extremely friendly atmosphere. I've never I've been to a few uh, conferences by now, uh, and uh, it was very welcoming, extremely welcoming. I, I appreciated it a lot. And, well, and uh, congratulations to you because I know that the number of submissions was really high. So to have been accepted is something to be proud of. Indeed, absolutely. And uh, having, having watched the video, I'm the first person to watch uh, Beyond's video. <laughs> um, I'm definitely glad that uh, we, we got him in the schedule. It was a, it was a great talk. Thanks, Bjorn. Great. great. Thank you. All right. Um, I guess there's some other conferences coming up we should mention. Um, registration is open for ACCU and also for EMBO++ Embedded. And um, I think you may have some thoughts on that one as well. Uh, Bjorn, have you attended that? conference before i know that you do embedded stuff uh actually i currently don't do embedded stuff but i have been doing that for a number of years but but no i've never been to um uh, embo plus plus unfortunately maybe one of these days all right i was just last night talking to or i guess tuesday night i was speaking to uh one of the organizers there um kind of kind of sounds like a lot of fun um c plus plus now uh, we're working on uh, the review committee is very busy right now. Most of the reviews are done, and now we're trying to figure out what the actual lineup is going to be. So we're right in the middle of it for uh, C++ now. Uh, uh, core C++ registrations open. Do you know, are they still accepting submissions on speakers? I don't think they are anymore. I think that closed, if I remember rightly. Okay, all right, all right. Um, uh, the Italian... Uh, Italian C++ is, uh, is scheduled for June, so that's a little ways off. Um, and I think they have... Andre is keynoting on that one, right? That's right. Yep. Got a really uh, score big on that one. All right. Mm. Um, uh, there's a Catch 2 release. Do you want to talk us about, tell us about that? Yeah, I put this in here because I think we, we missed the last couple of releases, and uh, it's a bit of a shame, really, because I'm the original for of, of Catch and Catch 2. But I have to say I've, I've been quite hands-off for a while. Um, so even I've missed the last few releases. So uh, I think it was yesterday, or the day before yesterday, 2.6.1 was released, which is mostly just uh, bug fixes. Um, but um, in the last previous few releases, generators have now been promoted to, to being production-ready. This is um, uh, the ability to, to data parameterize your tests. So I put in a, um, a beta version just last summer, um, and that's now been progressed to to the point they consider it production ready. So that's, that's quite a big thing. Also, a template type parameterized tests is also in. And uh, some stringifications for uh, std optional and std variant. So although catch itself um, relies only on C++11, uh, there are conditional uh, support for the various C++17 features as well. Particularly for vocabulary types. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, so I thought that was worth mentioning as well. Excellent. Yeah, so that's, that's catch. Uh, well, thanks for that release. Um... We also have a, a note here about, I did a guest blog post for, uh, Jonathan Bacara has a, a blog called Fluent C++, which is an interesting blog to read and generates some good discussion because he's, he's really kind of pushing what he's recommending that, you know, real best practices and a bit of a challenge. And so he had, he had recently, a few weeks ago, discussed... Um, for each and rain-based for loop, and I couldn't help but chime in. I sent him kind of an email about this. He says, well, you should turn this into a blog post. I said, okay. Um, but basically, it was, uh, it, it's my thoughts that, that it's kind of weird that we have a way of implementing algorithms and we pass lambdas into the algorithms, but there's this one special algorithm called for each, which is built into the language and does something different. So you can call the library version of for each, or you can do a range base for each. But the but if you use the range base for each, which was which is just a, a range based for, um, the syntax is different because you're not passing in a lambda. Instead, you have the silly loop. So uh, so that's my take on it. You can look at it. It's generated some interesting discussion uh, both on his on his blog and also um, on Reddit. I have to say, I haven't read the, the blog yet, but I'm quite interested in it. I have, I have opinions already, but I'm not going to share them until I've read it. Um, I think, I think that, that, you know, one of my arguments was that, that particularly when we get ranges, we're going to have more and more tools that make 
that leverage lambda is even better. But one of the responses is, yeah, but those same ranges features can be applied to the range-based for loop. So it, it kind of makes that more usable. It's really, I feel like, pretty limited right now. But, uh, but with ranges, you'll be able to do more interesting things with range-based for loop. So that's something. Yeah. Makes sense. You also have uh, another thing. If you're using, uh, uh, if you already have function objects and uh, combine them using higher order functions, uh, et cetera, then uh, I think the, the for each algorithm is a better fit because you don't have to name the loop variable, which is, which is actually not used for anything other than to pass into a function object. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it, it fits better with the way we do everything else. And that was kind of my argument. If you want to be consistent, um, you'd use for each to handle that particular algorithm, just like you have a function to handle all our other algorithms. You can imagine someone actually deciding, well, we're going to take all the algorithms and build them in as language as language features. That would just be insane. Nobody would think that's a good idea. But we've got this one particular one that's built in as a language feature, and we all think that's a great idea. And I'm, I'm a little skeptical about it, that's all. It's not like I feel strongly about it like I do with, you know, East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> do, do we need to get range-based four-loop wristbands? So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so there's one other announcement I want to make, and that is that um, we're looking for someone to present papers at, at committee meetings. Uh, our idea is if there was an individual who would like to be going to committee meetings but needs to have uh, some help with expenses, then um, that's what we're looking for, someone who will, who, will, who will study and can represent specific papers um, in exchange for financial help to go. And what we're really looking for someone who can commit to go to almost all the meetings. That's what we want is a consistent voice representing uh, specific papers. So if you are interested in going to the committee, are articulate, can understand um, language issues and library issues and can talk about those to the committee and are willing to represent a paper and would like to go to the committee meeting and need some financial help to do that, um, please, please let me know. I think this is a really important initiative. Uh, one of the criticisms of the standardization process is it's um, seen as something that's only possible for those that could either afford to send themselves or have a company that will sponsor them. And with with the meetings going on in all sorts of places around the world, I mean, next week it's in, in Hawaii, there's, there's a lot of people that would be able to say something valuable that just can't afford to go or don't have the opportunity. And this doesn't completely solve that problem but it's a really good step in the right direction so i think this should be uh publicized far and wide yes if you're if you're interested please please contact me in any of the many ways that you can contact me <laughs> there'll be links in the show notes yes all right are those all our announcements are we ready to talk about contracts i think so i think we've um we've established our preconditions now all right well uh um as a as a background uh what was your what was your talk about and and what did you cover in your in your presentation at C plus plus on C? Okay, um, to begin with, uh, I, I have to go a little bit further back in time. Um, I I have enjoyed using uh, contracts. I see contracts more as a, a an API design principle than a language feature. So I've been using it for, I don't know, 25 maybe years, something such. Uh, but uh, even though you don't need it to express your APIs uh, in a contracted form, it's, it's a good thing to get language support because with language support, you, you get tools, uh, hopefully, uh, and you get an uh, ability for uh, third-party libraries to... to to ship with contracts. Currently, it's kind of a mess. Everybody has their own way of expressing contracts. Uh, so when I heard that uh, contracts uh, were coming to C++, most probably the, that they were proposed and then they were voted in, uh, I was really excited about that and decided to uh, dig in uh, and learn about the, uh, the language support as it as it looks, and decided to to present uh, my findings. So, also then, based on uh, my experience with uh, software developers over the years, uh, I 
assumed that most developers are not particularly familiar with the ideas of uh, design by contract. So I devoted roughly one third of my talk to just introduce the ideas. Uh, what what do we mean? What do we want? And so introduce the notion of a precondition, uh, of a postcondition, and also a class invariant. What, what they are, how you think about them, etc. And uh, and then over to some of our audience. Some of our audience. I mean, I'm always astounded when I ask in, in one of my classes how many people know programming by contract as a as a technique, and, and a lot of them haven't heard about it. Uh, oh. I'm really surprised because it's oh. so valuable. Can you share just those, you know, talk about preconditions, postconditions, invariance real quickly for those people in our audience who aren't? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the idea is uh, really the, when you have a, a function, any, any kind of function, anything that is callable, you can set up a precondition where you, you're stating the obligation on the side of the caller, what, what, what must they fulfill for the, for the call to be legal. So, so you define the, the terms for when the call is allowed. And, and this uh, precondition can be about uh, parameter values. It can be about uh, an object state, uh, combinations thereof. And then on the other hand, you have post conditions, which are, are an obligation on the implementation, which says that if you call me, within the limits of the contract, then, then I promise to deliver that to you. So you have a constraint on what the, uh, what the function is allowed to do and what the caller can expect. And one really good thing about this, uh, apart from making the API quite clear, is that uh, uh, it can be a very, very quick argument settler when you have found a bug. Because uh, it's... Uh, it, if a call has been made uh, violating a precondition, then either either the caller has a terrible bug or the uh, well, the caller has obviously violated the contract. But either the caller has a bug that caused it to do that, or your contract is really bad. You, for example, you, I, I joked in my uh, presentation that you can state as a precondition that the next call to random must be four, uh, and that is legal, but a very bad idea. Uh, and then we have the idea of a class invariant, which is uh, a more difficult thing to, to explain. It's some condition that must hold true always for a, a valid object. Uh, and in my experience, it, it's very helpful if you can come up with a, a good class invariant, but, but it can be very difficult to do so, I think, anyway. Uh, uh, and especially in C++, since we allow uh, move from objects to exist in an indeterminate but valid state, so how do you capture that in a contract, in, a, in an invariant? Uh, but that is a very quick idea about what we what we mean with uh, contracts, with preconditions, with both conditions and uh, invariants. So was that a good enough yeah, intro? I think, I think it's good. Now talk to us about what's the proposal to put that idea, because that idea by itself needs no language support at all. As you said, you've been doing this for, for many years. Um, you can implement, in fact, if you look at the standard, the standard also often talks in standard functions using the terms preconditions and postconditions, right? So, uh, so you don't need language support in order to do this. But we do have a proposal, and in fact, it's in the draft, correct? That's our state, right? It's not in. Yes. Yep. It's in the draft. It's in, it's in the draft, correct? Yeah. So, um, so tell us what that proposal is. So that proposal says that on functions you can. Uh, Define preconditions and postconditions. Declare, I guess, rather. De declare preconditions and postconditions, and, and they are uh, written as attributes on the function. So you can say that this function expects uh, and some condition, uh, which then is a precondition, and you can, you can list several of them, and also that it ensures things, uh, the, which are then postconditions. Uh, and uh, 
what's there is there are no uh, invariants uh, in the proposed standard, uh, and also one thing that is missing. Yeah, when I first learned about the design by contract, that was uh, in university uh, back in the. Uh, Neolithic age, uh, and uh, we used the Eiffel programming language, uh, which had all of these, uh, and it had also a way of referring to old values. So you, you can say in, in the Eiffel programming language, you can say a post condition is, uh, uh, say, the the value returned is some value calculated from the previous old value returned from a function. Uh, and, and this ability to, to refer to previous state does not exist in the draft standard either. So that, that is missing. But, uh, but you, yeah, you, you can have, uh, you have declarations of, with attributes on functions defined where you say preconditions and postconditions. There's also uh, an assert which is kind of interesting that it is uh, lumped together because it it really is. Uh, you, you can use it as a drop-in replacement for the uh, assert macro. Uh, so anywhere where you can have a statement, you can have a, a, a assert attribute. Uh, the difference between the these and the uh, assert macro is that the assert macro is either on or off. And uh, when it's on and triggered, then you call abort. Uh, and th there are no ifs and buts, so that is what it does. Uh, whereas the proposed uh, feature uh, is a little bit more fine-grained. You, you can say for each precondition, postcondition, uh, and uh, assert, you, you can specify a level saying that it's, a, it's on a default level, it's on an audit level, which is sort of a intended for more expensive checks that you maybe don't always want. And also in the other way, in the other end, you have checks that are marked. You, you can mark them as axiom, which which are then never checked, but they can yeah. be... Yeah, sorry. So for example, if I was writing a binary search routine, I could say that my precondition is my data is all sorted. Now, I wouldn't want that checked regularly because that's a an order n yeah. uh, verification that's going to kind of defeat the purpose of having a, a binary search as my algorithm, right? So yes. I, I want to tag that, and I say this precondition is an audit precondition, meaning only in the most extreme circumstances, when you're really, really debugging your code full yes. on, troubleshooting problems, then you would do the check. Otherwise, in the default mode, don't do this check because it's too inexpensive a check. So I, when I write the check, whether it's a precondition or a postcondition, when I write the check, I specify at that point essentially what its cost is by saying if it's audit or default. Yes, that is correct. Or at least that's my understanding on it. Uh, uh, but, but then also you have uh, axiom. Axiom are never checked. Uh, or rather, no code is ever generated to do the check. But the code optimizer can can take advantage of it. Uh, static analysis tools can take advantage of it. Your uh, your IDE could take advantage of it uh, and flag problems for you. So so there is that. And, and then when you compile, you, you can say that, that now I'm compiling with, uh, with the default level and now I'm compiling including also the audit checks for, uh, like you mentioned, the, uh, the heavy debugging sessions where you really, really want to know exactly what happens. Uh, and also, you can compile with all checks off if, if you're a bit wild and crazy. All right. So um, I think we I derailed you from from talking about what was your particular presentation. So you said that you gave a little bit of background on what contracts was, and then what did you then what did you talk about in terms of this specific proposal? Well, I. Uh, Pretty much what I just said. So uh, uh -huh. I, I realized I could have done the presentation in ten minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now um, I, I went back to my introductory example and uh, applied these uh, uh, 
these attributes and discussed the, the things that we cannot express because in my example, I actually did refer to previous data and such things, which, uh, which the language proposal doesn't uh, allow for. Uh, but then I, after that, I went on to very much uh, quote the standard in or proposed standard in, in various ways and how how you can what, what you can do what you cannot do what are the difficulties so one of the interesting things uh, for example is that you can uh, you can have your own violation handler uh, the violation handler then is called when when a contract is checked and the uh, condition uh, evaluates to false so then you call a contract handler uh, and there are some interesting things there uh, one of the things that surprised me when I read the, the draft is that uh, it very explicitly says that there must be no programmatic way to set the, uh, the violation handler or to query what it is so that is something that uh, you must use some, some other technique to, to, to get to. And uh, there, is a, there is a proof of concept uh, fork of Clang available. Uh, and with that one, you can set it as a, as a compilation flag. You say that this is my violation handler and give the name of a function. Uh, and uh, then I went on to talk about some of the interesting problems with that. For example, uh, when contracts are checked in a function, both preconditions and postconditions, they are checked. The, the checks are compiled into the body of the function. That is an important bit to understand. Uh, I would, I think, I would prefer actually if at least preconditions were checked out before entering the function, but they are they are checked inside the function, uh, and there comes an important thing because. It, it is allowed for the uh, violation handler to uh, to throw an exception, which uh, sounds reasonable until you realize that it can be called from inside uh, a no accept function, and then you're in trouble. So the function's no accept, but potentially the the handler is not the the yeah uh, yes uh, yeah I see I see. Now, one thing that one reason that's particularly important is because a lot of the time we are looking to put contracts in instead of using exceptions, particularly uh, logic error exceptions. Yes. And so, by removing exceptions, we then want to make the function no accept. It's just a natural progression from that. So, this is a real uh, sticking point in that progression, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to parenthetically say that logic error exceptions are an abomination and. And, and are themselves a logic error. So, for, okay. for this reason. Yes, that is, uh, yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, uh, there is also, let me see, where were I? I think I lost something. Anyway, anyway uh, there is also a, a way to, to say that in this uh, proof of concept, uh, Clang fork, you, you also have a flag where you can set, if, set a continuation mode where you can say, is, is execution allowed to continue after a contract violation or not? Uh, by default, it's not allowed to, call, to continue. It, it calls terminate after, after the continuation handler. Uh, and that is, I think, an interesting thing, because it, at least in my view on how you use a contract is that... By definition, a violation of a contract is a bug that you will have a difficult time recovering from. Because if you could recover from it, why on earth was it a contract? Uh, so I'm not entirely sure I understand why you would want that. But I'm sure people will find really good reasons. <laughs> I think testing is one of the reasons. If you want to test something by forcing a contract violation, just make sure that it actually handles it correctly. Yeah, but that is, sure. Uh, but then uh, your object under test continues execution in violation of its uh, contract. So how... Yeah, I'm not saying there's an easy solution to that. Yeah. There is a, a, a cop-out that is uh, explicitly mentioned in the 
the proposal, and that is you you can cheat and and leave with a be a long jump if you're crazy enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's a C plus plus friendly way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. But it might be good enough for testing. It, it actually, I when writing the the talk, I actually did some such experiments just to to try it out, and and yeah, it, you can do that. But no, I wouldn't. Not not for any other purpose than just to learn. Um, so, what is the what is the controversy that Phil alluded to? Uh, for what's in the standard now. Is it is the controversy about what's been voted in or is it about a change that's being proposed to what's already been voted in? Uh, I'm, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I think some of the controversies are uh, regarding to what extent the optimizer is allowed to make use of, of uh, contracts when they are not checked. So... In fact, there there is uh, one paper that is uh, in the mailing for uh, for the Kona meeting, uh, P twelve ninety, uh, written by Daniel Garcia and uh, Ville Wutilainen, uh, about avoiding undefined behavior uh, when uh, well when you have some contracts that are checked and some contracts that are not checked, uh, so sort of set the rules for when the optimizer is allowed to make use of uh so so in other words yeah. if if i have a precondition that says the data is sorted for the example that i gave earlier um if it's not checked because we're not in audit mode we're just in the default mode so it's not actually going to check that can the compiler actually assume that if it had been checked it would have been true because otherwise we're outside the contract and the it's essentially undefined behavior. So the, so the compiler can just assume, no, no, it really is sorted and make that assumption and build code based on that being true. Oh. Uh, my understanding of this uh, paper is that it, it's, uh, it, it's meant to, to, uh, to say that the compiler is only allowed to make, take advantage of... Uh, information that it has from contracts that have already been checked. And I'm not sure I agree that that is a very good idea. Um, one of the examples that is uh, used in this paper is uh, a function that takes a pointer and it has a precondition that the pointer must not be null under any circumstances. But then inside the function body, they still have an if if null check and does different things. And then they're arguing for, it's, would, be, would it be a good idea to align this if null check because if the precondition is not uh, checked, and I, in my opinion, it's uh, th that is sort of a, a crazy way to write a function. If if you have stated well, a precondition, wait a minute, wait a minute. Though, yep. imagine that I'm calling some inline function. Yep. So I didn't write the function that's being called, and that function does a check to see if if a value is null. And I'm assuming, and I'm passing it, knowing it will never be null, but I'm just calling the function. I mean, it seems to me quite plausible. I understand, I, understand, uh, yep. I think, where you were going. You were saying it'd be crazy for me to say this function, uh, the pointer has to never be null. Why would I ever check it in my code? But I might check it in my code because I might call uh, some it, other function. It, indirectly, yes. You're, you're absolutely correct about that. And uh, the compiler could see that because it's an inline function and can say. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what my take on this is, uh, at least I think it is, un un unless uh, someone can point me to some... Uh, something that I have missed, uh, is that if you have stated as a precondition that this pointer must absolutely not under any circumstances be null, then, yeah, of course the compiler is allowed to, to uh, elide that, those checks in a further down uh, inline function that is being called, I think. Because you're already prepared to terminate the program in the event that it was null. Right. And I agree with you. If we take preconditions seriously, then that's what we need to do. I think what happens is that people looking at this saying, well, yeah, it's a precondition, but maybe they didn't mean it. And and that just, then then why are we doing this? No, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a precondition. We've stated, this. if this isn't true, all bets are off. We have no idea what the yeah. code is going to do. Yeah. Um, and so we shouldn't do things like say, um, well, you have to pass in a non-null value, but just in case you did, I'm going to check and throw an exception. 
Yeah. That's what we're trying yeah. to get away from. That's yes. exactly what we're trying to get away yes. from. We're specifying this is the precondition, and and now we're going to write code based on the assumption the preconditions met, because that's why we said it was a precondition. Yeah, we're, we're because it, giving ourselves permission yeah, to yeah. make that assumption yes. writing the code. Yes. So if you're writing a, in a very defensive way that you're prepared that maybe it could be null, then remove the contract, remove right. the precondition. Make it make it a wide contract saying I'll yeah. take any, you know, there's two ways to write a square root function. One is to say you can't pass me a negative number and all bets are off if you do. And the other is to say if you pass me a negative number, I throw an exception. Yeah. Both of those are perfectly valid. Um, and you decide what your contract yeah, is going yeah, to be. Yeah. But if but you decide, you know, make don't, up your don't mind. Mix them. Yeah, don't mix them. Don't say, oh, you must pass me, uh, you must pass me a positive number or zero. But just in case, I'm going to check for it. That's just um, no. That's the wrong solution. Yeah, uh, I think so too. Uh, but then there are there are also some other there are two other papers that I I think are really interesting. Uh, another one, uh, also from uh, Ville Wotelainen, that uh, I don't quite understand, uh, P1320, uh, where it says you can, you can specify contracts on the, uh, on the implementation rather than on the interface, uh, which I find kind of weird because the, I, I'm guessing that there are Thinking about uh, internal contracts on, on private member functions or something such, then you don't want to clutter the interface with uh, with those contracts. But I wonder if if you find yourself in that situation, if you haven't actually discovered that there, you have sort of a, a, another small class in there that, that wants to break free and have its public public members. Uh, have contracts visible, and then it's a private detail in this clause that, that it uses this other clause. I believe. Yeah. But another one is uh, really interesting, uh, written by Joshua Byrne and John Lurkos, uh, P fourteen twenty nine, uh, with a clickbaity title: "Contracts That Work." Um, they have the observation that in in terms of catching bugs. Uh, different contracts have different value. So they say that, that they want to be able to differentiate between contracts that uh, where violations are survivable and when they are not. And also to compile with uh, different checking levels depending on contracts. So they, they note specifically that... Uh, Preconditions catch way, way, way more bugs than post conditions do. So maybe be able to uh, compile preconditions with stricter checking than post conditions. For example, uh, I haven't made up my mind uh, about that if it's uh, good or bad, but I find it's an interesting take, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um... Maybe that's the kind of thing that could be done at a tool level. It doesn't have to be in the language. Maybe you could tell the compiler, "This is what I want. I want you to to compile in the preconditions, but not the postconditions." I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah, it, I oh, guess it's a valid oh, point. Yeah, it's a, I, I agree absolutely about the observations. That that is a, a, no disagreement there uh, at all. Uh, I'm. I'm curious about what the effects would be if we uh, had this uh, in the language. I, I don't know. Well, one of the things that I think will be very good, although uh, Robert in the in the chat room has made something somewhat cynical. He's saying that he thinks that the that uh, with contracts in the language, um, programming by contract will be just as popular as it is now. <laughs> which is, I think is is a way of saying it's not it's not going to it's not going to impact. But I think that's not true. If it's in the language, I think people will know about it. I think the vast majority of C plus plus programmers, as I said, that I asked this question in in in, uh, in my training, do not know about programming by contract as a thing. And I think they yeah. will if it's in the language. Yeah. They're going to learn it because it's like, well, what is this feature? And they say, okay, well, let's set you down. We're going to talk about preconditions, postconditions. We're going to talk about invariance. 
Um, and we're going to talk about what these things mean. And maybe we even talk about wide contracts and narrow contracts. Yes. Um, because these are concepts that it's, it's interesting. It was something that um, Dave Abrahams kind of pointed out to me. He says, even if you don't use this terminology, even if you've never thought about programming by contract, in effect, if you've written code at all, you've had to deal with it. I mean, you, you had to think in terms of, well, when is it safe to call this code? And you probably documented this function, you know, call this only when the container is not empty or something like that. You had yep. to have, um, and you didn't use the terminology and you didn't think about it rigorously, but, but if you wrote code at all, that, that had to be the case. Yep. Um, and I think it will straighten out a lot of things. I mean, I've seen code where it's very clear that the, the caller is, is passing data that the callee is not expecting, but it's not clear who's wrong there, right? Is, yes. is the bug is the bug on the code being written because it wasn't doing proper error checking, or was the code on the on the caller? If we don't specify what the contract is, it's impossible to know whose fault it is. Yes, that is exactly the, as I mentioned earlier. Now, I've been in a number of uh, debugging sessions uh, where, after hours of hard work, we actually found out exactly what the problem is. And it is just what you said. A function was called with an unexpected value. And then the argument starts. Who's who's to blame? Was it, a, was it a faulty implementation that obviously should have taken care of this situation? Or was the caller at fault for, for giving the wrong, calling it with the wrong uh, parameters or in the wrong state or whatever? Uh, and had the contract been there, the, the discussion would have ended right there. Well, had the contract been there, the bug probably wouldn't have happened. Because had the contract been there, either the function would have been written to handle it or else the caller wouldn't have called it that way. Hopefully. Uh, but, uh, I mean, mistakes do happen. But but uh, but if they do, then it's, to begin with, the debugging session is much shorter because you know that <laughs> it, it, the program terminated because this condition was violated. So then we know exactly what happened and when uh, and where. Uh, and the the blame is very easy to to find. There is one possible uh, situation, though, that we can argue if the contract is correct, or maybe it should have been written in a different way. But but it's still a much more productive discussion than to argue about what whose fault is it. There is a, there's one point that I do agree with uh, with Robert Ramey on in the chat. Uh, he, he says, we'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, in fact, there's, there's been quite a lot going on in the chat. It's been uh, very active today. Yeah. We don't have time to cover all of it. But uh, one point that has come out, ironically, has been particularly pushed by, by Robert. And I do agree with this one, which is that we should really be leaning on the type system a lot more to remove a lot of oh. these, these cases where we might be using contracts. And I, I agree with that. But, and here's the but. Um, so the way I see it, uh, if you if you establish a type that says um, you know once you have this type, you can make all these assumptions about it because it's encoded in the type. There's still got to be a point where you get information into that type. These, these boundary points, you're going to need to do some validation, and the type of validation is going to de depend on on the the specific use case. So you might want to do um, some sort of runtime validation because you're getting your inputs from uh, I/O, for example, reading in from the file or across the internet. Uh, and then you'll need to do a runtime check and take a runtime course of action um, to you know, maybe do something else instead or report the error. But if it's um, information that's coming from within the code, just from somewhere else in the code, and you, you want to make the assumption you're getting the correct information, then it's a bug if you don't. And that's really the domain of contracts. So even if you're using the type system to full effect, you still need something like contracts at these boundary points in the code, you just need to push the boundary back as far as you can. Yeah. That, that's my take yeah. on that. I, uh, yeah, I, I agree that, that we can rely better on, on types, but I, but I think all you're doing is moving. Yeah, exactly. You're moving the yeah. contract. Mm -hmm. And it's probably a good thing that you move the contract. Yeah. Let's, let's do but, that. I'm all for but, that. But, but you haven't obviated the need for yes. contracts. Yeah, and move everything you can to, to compile time. Absolutely. Uh, but but I, I think some things are... are not reasonable to, to express at compile times. You, you probably don't want an empty queue to be a different type from a queue that has elements in it, I think. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, that, that's awkward in C++. There are yeah, languages yeah. where the, that's the, the, um, There are, there are languages function. where that uh, absolutely works. Yeah. But, but C++ is, um, mm -hmm. well, it's doable, but, 
but it's really not convenient. Yeah, I mean, and I, an example that um, that I've seen before that um, is sort of close to that is I saw some code where there was a lot of um, strings being passed around and at various levels being checked to see whether they were lowercase or, or making them lowercase, mostly so they could be used as, as a lookup. And what I noticed was that these strings were just being checked again and again and again. So I just created a lowercase string type. So it validates its input once, and then you pass a lowercase string type around it, but it doesn't need to be checked again. It's all enforced at compile time. So that, that was just a you know, very simple example, but it's, it's using a, just a slightly different type that encodes the semantics of what, what you wanted. Yeah. Uh, like I say, it'd be awkward to do that for everything. You know, you pick your battles. There are some things that you can get some benefit yep. from doing that. But I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, correct by construction where you can. We're, we're moving to a world where we can do more and more with that as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is also another thing that uh, usually comes up. It hasn't come up in this discussion because you're boring and agree with me. Uh, but uh, one thing that I'm often met with when I'm bring this up is this uh, idea that it's dangerous to use these constructions because you terminate the program if you're a, if you have a problem and that is never acceptable the program must always continue executing uh, which i kind of disagree with because uh, even though a user of your program will be really pissed off if you crash they will probably be even more pissed off if you corrupt their data mm-hmm. uh, I actually have an interesting story about that if you want a war story. That's what the show's about. That's what the show is about. Uh, it was uh, ages ago I worked in a... We, we had a, a real-time system. Uh, and it was uh, flaky as heck. It was crashing all the time. And uh, there was this dogma that the, the, we must always be able to handle all situations uh, it was never be allowed to to crash, and it crashed a lot. And it was even to, to the uh, extent that the, uh, they didn't want to. Uh, the MMU was set up such that uh, access uh, via the null pointer was just uh, another access. Uh, the only problem with that was that you just couldn't. You wouldn't be left alone with your data at null because so many used it. Uh, and uh, after a while, uh, a colleague and I got totally fed up with this uh, appalling situation where the system was crashing left and right, and we could never understand what the problem was, except that we saw that, yeah, the data structures are corrupt, but we don't know when they became corrupt. Uh, so we sprinkled the system with uh, a search everywhere. Uh, everywhere we could see, everywhere we found a problem, we just sprinkled with a search. And sure, the, the next couple of weeks weren't pretty. It crashed extremely much. But then it crashed with information that we could use to understand what the problem was so we could fix them. And uh, it wasn't more than two or three weeks and the system was really solid. It never crashed again. Well, I wouldn't say never, but, but rarely, instead of crashing often. So don't be afraid to to use the rather abrupt uh, handling of terminating your program when you know that you have a bug. As long as you, as long as you terminate with information about what the problem is. Right. Well, it, it does depend on, it does depend on your situation. You know, if this is something that's running on your server, if you're running a web service of some sort, um, then that, then that's something that you can address and do some. When I worked at, at Microsoft, I worked in the the Mac user uh, <clears throat> the Mac uh, user group and the or business unit and the and and one of the things that we looked at it, it was a different model than today where you where you look at apps and you up send out updates and things like that. I mean, we were sending out boxes with disks in them, and we knew that people were going to use this software for years because that's just what we knew, and so we had this weird philosophy of even in the in in the face of these kinds of problems to try to try to degrade degrade as gently as possible so we actually would specify and say you know this is the contract for our function no guarantees if you are outside the contract but in fact we would in fact throw an exception and and at least try to 
die gracefully. Yeah. Um, so it was this, it was this kind of um, contradiction in what I teach today, which what I teach today is no, you're outside the contract. It's all undefined behavior. And, yeah. and in fact, we tried to basically jump back to the event loop. Um, it's possible that we lost data, but we probably only lost the data you just entered and not data that you've, that you've been using. And so it was possible to survive from there. You could do a save or something like that. At that yeah. But I, I guess that goes back to this uh, paper I mentioned uh, with uh, contracts at work, where, where you can, can specify that this, this contract is one that a, a violation is survivable, no. uh, and this other contract is not. Yeah. So, but, it, but yeah, but it, when you start to get to that point, you begin to ask what a contract is, and then you yeah. get in this weird situation. So I've never really defended our, what we did at Microsoft. We just did it because, yeah. because it was in the situation we were at, it, it seemed to make sense. But yeah. it's not really defensible in an intellectual way. Either you're outside the contract, in which case uh, nothing is guaranteed, or you're inside the contract, in which case the, the, the functions have to handle it in yes. some way. Yeah. Whatever's appropriate, right? Is your is your is your guarantee or is your uh, contract wide or narrow, and and figure out what it is and then behave appropriately. Yep. And again, C doesn't really give us the the tools to make this easy. But but other languages that have this at its core, like uh, Erlang, for example, they're, they're predicated on on the idea that you know, things are going to fail and things will be left in an undefined state. And so you have them isolated in processes that are very cheap to to pull down and, and bring back up again. Mm-hmm. And then the integrity of the rest of the system is preserved. And these are just uh, communicating processes. And you know, to some extent, we can do that with C++, of course. We just have to do a lot of the infrastructure work ourselves. So for you know, highly resilient um, uh, server-based uh, systems, uh, that, that is an approach that's often used, sort of um, getting into the territory of uh, microservices, um, which uh, have a bit of a bad name with some people. But that, that is one good property about them is that they do have certain resilience to parts of the system going down without impacting the integrity of the rest of the system. So there are ways to, to mitigate that. So are you going to be um, in Kona next week? No, nope, I'm not. Um, I am, however, going to present this uh, again at uh, ACCU in April, and I have absolutely no idea what that presentation will be. <laughs> <laughs> because it depends on what happens next week in Kona. Yes, yes. Uh, the most interesting uh, outcome would, of course, be that there will be no contracts in the language after next week, and then I have absolutely no idea what I will do. <laughs> well, I, I kind of, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen, but I kind of can't imagine it's going to go away. There's an awful lot of people who invested a lot in it. And there's so much to be gained, even with an imperfect. Even with an imperfect implementation, yeah. and I think the last time we brought this up, uh, contracts on this show, I went off on the on the the fact that the in the in the post condition, it you can't refer to a value that's in the, that's passed in, um, and that's the way they had defined it. And the reason it's obvious from an implementation point of view, if you pass something into the function, and that function that object is a move only object, and it is in fact moved from. There's no way to know what the original value was, so you can't make a post condition that depends on the original value of something passed in. And so I understand why they said, well, you just can't do that. However, most post conditions are, in fact, going to want to be dependent on the value passed in. You're going to want to say something like, um, there, you know, you're passing in an iterator, you're now going to want to, your post condition to say that at this location, this value will now appear, or something like that. Yep. And so you really, really want that feature. And to, and to say... Well, you can't use it. To me, that's just crazy. Even though I understand there might be situations where it literally can't be used, but but that's going to be a really corner case. And you can make language yeah. that says that the compiler at compile time can recognize that that is not a it's not achievable to make that check because because you're trying to test a move only object. If it's not move only, it's expensive because you'd have to copy it. But at least you can do that. And if that's what the user has specified in their post condition, then that's what you would have to do. Yes. Yeah, I, I would like to see uh, such a change also that, that the uh, the compiler can tell you that, that uh, what you have now stated uh, will not be checkable. Therefore, it is a compilation error. 
Or, so, or the compiler could just tell you that it won't be checked and leave it alone because you're giving value. If, if I yeah. say um, my, my post condition depends on, this is my post condition, that it's some function of some value, uh, some parameter value, and the compiler can say that's not checkable. But I leave it there because someone reading the code would realize this is what I'm saying is true of the yes. post condition. Right. Least, then the compiler could then the compiler could error unless you make it an axiom, and that would seem reasonable. Well, maybe yeah, yeah. maybe that's the way yeah. to go. Yeah. I guess I yeah. don't know enough about what's what's offered in the standard. Yeah. But but that's such a bizarre corner case. I mean, yes, it's yeah. theoretically possible that it can't be evaluated, but you know how often do we use move only types, and how often are we going to have post conditions that are going to be based on the move move-only types, and how often are those move-only types going to actually be moved from in the in the object? You know, if it's not moved from, then you can still compare to it. Yeah, and and especially, not, not only that, but also referred to in the post condition. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's a, a, a confluence of, uh, you know, of corner cases on top of corner cases. Yeah. And, and, to, and to give up this feature that's really going to be useful a lot of the time, it's, it's a major benefit of post conditions, uh, of being able to specify that post condition, um, I, th I think that's a, I think that's something. But I would also say that's also something that we could change later. In other words, right now we might say you can't write a post condition based on this. But later on, we could have that fight if the rest of contracts goes in. And so for twenty three or something like that, we could have new language that says, well, yeah, I guess you can use the post condition with these limitations or something like that. You know, we can. It's not like. Um, some of the things that are going in the standard, I might get all upset and say, no, you can't, if you put it in wrong, we'll live with that forever. But this is one where if you put this in this way, it could be fixed in the future, I think. Yeah, I also think that uh, it's a, there are problems here, but they are not unsurvivable problems. We, we, we can live with them and we can improve them. And I also think that there is a, a great value in, uh, in having the language support because that makes it possible for a, uh, library developers to have contracts enforced in their libraries, uh, which is something that today is not possible because then you have to agree on which of many also library solution mechanisms for, for checking contracts should be used. Now, if, if this goes through, then we have one way of checking contracts, and that is the language supported way. And that is good. Yeah. That's why we have standards. <laughs> yeah. We're uh, getting to the point where we're going to need to check our post conditions. Oh. Um, <laughs> that, that previous that episode where we talked about contracts, by the way, was episode 32. I'll put a link in the show notes. We had a discussion with, with John Lakos. But, but we, have, we have ODR used that, so now it's a, a <laughs> undefined behavior to, to refer to it in the post condition. All of this show is undefined behavior. That's, that's a given. <laughs> Um, I mentioned at the start that um, your uh, your video, Bjorn, uh, from C++ on C. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Phil, let me say one thing about uh, behavior. I, um, I've been called out at my uh, interview style with, uh, uh, with Nico when he was on. Some people thought I was um, inappropriately behaved. And I apologize. I, I, I never want to offend everybody. I, I do want to make this show very free reign, and I, I think we should have fun, but I don't want to get overboard on that so let me let me just say that and then um, i didn't mean to interrupt you when you were talking to bjorn there but i wanted to say that quickly before we end yeah i don't think there's anything um inappropriate or offensive it's just uh you're interrupting okay. people too much <laughs> so thanks for interrupting me to tell you that <laughs> so anytime um beginning of the show i did say that the the video from c plus plus on c may well be um published or, or ready to be published by the end of the show. And I just had an email from, uh, from a video guy saying that he's actually hit a bug in the exporting process. So I thought that's quite appropriate given the nature of the, uh, the video. So that may take a little bit longer, but hopefully we'll be ready either later tonight or tomorrow as we record this, uh, certainly by the time uh, the podcast comes out. So uh, anything else you would like to, uh, to cover before we, before we close out, Bjorn? Um, no, uh, I'm really, really, really looking forward to seeing what, what happens in Kona next week. Uh, and uh, it would be interesting to see if I have something to talk about in, uh, at ACCU in April. Yeah, I hope so too. I think 
the, the, the problems that we have are either fixable or inherent, and yep. uh, we're better off with contracts than than without them. Yes, and you know what goes into standard aside. I want to thank you for raising the the profile of of contracts in general. It's a, it's a, a very important tool for software engineers, and it's unappreciated. Yes, and underappreciated. And I, I um, and I appreciate your uh, raising raising that profile. Thank you. Thank you. Is it now time to wish everyone uh, safe coding? I think so. In fact, uh, I think especially safe coding. Especially safe coding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Stay within contract. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, happy Valentine's Day, everyone, and we wish you all safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. <laughs>